0: Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. We are going to finish this chapter this morning. What a glorious time already in singing and worshiping the Lord through song. What wondrous truths we get to declare as believers. Praise the Lord. Well, it is never a fun experience when you find out that you are missing out on something. You find out that you have missed out on something special or enjoyable or fun. Maybe you missed out on an inside joke. As a wise person once said, I love inside jokes and I'd like to be a part of one one day. Maybe it's that brief, fleeting moment when you're walking onto an airplane and as you look to the left, you see this massive curtain that divides you and first class. And usually there's a stewardess that's trying to lead you to your seat, to the right, where all of us incredibly poor people have to sit. And sometimes the pilot's even standing there guarding that curtain, as if to say, don't even look, like, don't even look. This is not for your eyes. You are not first class. Go sit in your seat. Every once in a while, you can catch a glimpse. It's like there's shining glory behind that curtain. (laughs) And you can look, and you can see. Everyone's laying down flat. They all have 94-inch plasma screen TVs in front of their face. You know, the stewardess is walking by with artisanal coffee, whatever you want you can have. Here's, you know, a puppy if you want a puppy. Here's, you know, whatever. You name it. Clearly, I've never flown first class. I have no idea. It's never fun to miss out on something. But at the same time, sometimes we use what we're missing to describe something good. Back to our artisanal coffee, maybe you take a sip and you say, hmm, this is good because it's not burnt. Maybe it's a YouTube video where you finally go, ah, there's no ads, which means this is a great experience. Maybe it's a good day at Disneyland. A good day at Disneyland is good because what's missing? Crowds, all the people are gone. We get this place to ourselves. And sometimes when you're confronted with a new site and you don't even know how to describe it, the best way to describe it is to describe what it isn't in order to help you understand what it is. That's exactly what's happening here at the end of Revelation 21. The new Jerusalem is distinguished by John by the things that are missing. He's going to list a number of them, and it even goes into chapter 22, where he's just going to list out this isn't there, this isn't there, this isn't there. And in describing what's missing, he's not saying that we're we're going to be missing out on something. He's actually describing what we will be enjoying because of what will not be there. So let's read this section together. Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 through the end of the chapter. And we will notice five items that are missing in the new Jerusalem, in our eternal heavenly home. John writes, I saw no temple, for the Lord, the Lord God the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it because the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, because there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Father, we thank you for these words in the middle of a week where we have seen conflicts arise in other parts of our world, and we have wondered at what that would mean for us. We've prayed for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. We've prayed for those that we know who are missionaries there. We've We have cried out to you and we've wept on their behalf and we are wondering because we don't know what's going to happen. And then we come to the Lord's Day and we come to this section of Scripture and we come to a description of what we know without any lack of confidence or assurance. We know without a shadow of a doubt that we are headed to our eternal home where there will be no more war, there will be no more conflict, no more sorrow, no more death. Even here this morning, in this text, we see nations in the new Jerusalem, but they are not at war. They are unified. So, Father, I thank you for the reminder yet again that every single word of your scripture is relevant for us today. So teach us. Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We need you to teach us Apart from you, Holy Spirit, we will not have that gift of illumination to understand, to receive your word. We don't want to just intellectually assent to an understanding that's, that's correct. We want our hearts to be set aflame and ablaze with a passion for heaven and a longing for Christ And we don't want that to ever go away or die down. We want it to be fueled this morning. So, Father, grant us through your spirit the ability to see what we need to see to persevere through the rest of our days here on earth until we get to be at this location here in the New Jerusalem. Help us. Teach us. Be our guide this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. There are five... Items that are clearly missing in the New Jerusalem that we're going to go through this morning. And we will go through them quickly because they're obvious. They're, they're easily seen here. And then at the end, we'll look at what those all mean for us today. Number one, clearly, there is no temple. There is no temple. Another way we could say that is there's no distance between God and man. There's no temple. There's no distance between God and man. This is verse 22. I saw no temple. In the New Jerusalem, because God the Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. No temple. What is a temple? And why isn't there one here in the New Jerusalem? Well, a temple is a sanctuary in the middle of a city. It's a place where God dwells in holiness in the middle of a fallen and evil city. So there's a house, there's a place where God dwells and you cannot approach it in some willy-nilly fashion. You have to be cleansed uh, even to enter into the Holy of Holies. You needed to be the high priest and one day a year and go through this cleansing process. So there's a place where God dwells in holiness and a special presence, obviously God is omnipresent, he's everywhere at all times, but there's a special manifestation of his presence in the temple that's where he dwells, and it has to be a walled up place. It has to be a sanctuary where he dwells, and no one can just waltz on in, because it's in the midst of a fallen world. But here in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens, and the new earth, in the eternal state, God no longer has any need of some home that's smaller than the city itself to keep him purified, to keep him set apart. No, the whole city is pure. Therefore, there is no need for a temple. The temple would separate God's people from other people. God's people, Israel in the Old Testament, had a tabernacle and a temple where God dwelled among his people. Other nations didn't have God's presence in that way in a temple. But here... In the New Jerusalem, there is no division where other people that are non-Jews do not have access to the presence of God. He dwells in their midst, and they dwell in his midst. In the Old Testament, there was a tabernacle, there was a temple. In the Millennial Kingdom, even, in Jerusalem, there was a temple. But here in the eternal state, there will be no temple, which you have to understand, for John. And for any Old Testament reader, any, any Jewish person who understood the Old Testament, who understood the glory of what a, a temple was, a house of God was, they would be awestruck and dumbfounded that heaven will have no temple. What that means for them is heaven is a place where God's glory and a manifest presence is dwelling in every corner of this location. There's no location that's guarded up or walled up from God's presence where you need to walk to, to get to, to to enjoy God's presence. In the New Testament, we even saw this in the book of Revelation. If you go back to Revelation chapter 3, to the church in Philadelphia, Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, Jesus promised the church in Philadelphia, which you remember, the church in Philadelphia, Philadelphia had two specific historic issues that were going on. Number one, there were severe earthquakes in that city uh, that was destroying the city, destroying all the pillars, destroying all the uh, beautiful architect. And then the Christians were actually persecuted by being thrown out of the city. They had to stay outside of the city walls. They had to build their tents and camps outside of the city walls. And it is because of that that Jesus says specifically to this church He who overcomes, this is chapter 3, verse 12, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, we know that since there is no temple, that means that they will be a rock-solid fortress, an immovable fortress in the entirety of what heaven is. Because there's no temple in heaven. There's no place where they will literally be a pillar. We're not going to be pillars standing in heaven. This is a reference to the immovable nature of your status as a secure believer in heaven. And Jesus continues. He's not going to go out from it anymore. Now, we know in the end of Revelation that saints get to go in and out of this holy city. But the point of what Jesus is saying here is you won't be like you are now. The Philadelphian believers, you have been cast out of the city. You don't get to enjoy the presence of that warmth and security in the middle of the city. No, in the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, you will never go to a place where my presence is not, and you will never be cast away from where I dwell. Then he goes on, the name of my God, I will write on him, I own him, they are mine, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. So in the Old Testament, the temple was a place of glorious Majesty of the presence of God, and God says, We don't need a temple anymore because in heaven my presence fills every corner. In the New Testament, he further explains that. We will have unrestricted access, eternal citizenship in this New Jerusalem. You'll never be evicted. You'll never have your passport or visa expire. You never have to live outside the city in some tent because you're an outcast or you're not allowed in. You have perfect security. There's no temple. Remember when Jesus was on the earth, he said something greater than the temple is here. He even called his own body the temple. You had to worship the Father through the Son. Uh, The temple was a place of mediation where you had to go to to worship God through a human agent. But you remember that Jesus... On the day that he died, the veil, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom in the temple saying, now you have free access. That's what Jesus said to the woman at the well in John's gospel that uh, you worship on this mountain, we worship on that mountain. There's coming a day when you won't worship on any mountain. You can worship anywhere, spirit and truth, because God's presence will be manifest to you in a direct way. You can worship God directly. No longer is a structure necessary because The saints in heaven are in the immediate presence of the Lord with no need for an earthly mediator or for shadows of the things to come, the eternal presence of God. God dwells with us. We dwell with him. The temple is a place that you would have to go to be able to worship. We don't need a place to go in heaven to worship because we're there. Heaven is the place. Wherever you go and whatever you do, God's presence will be there. There's no temple in the new Jerusalem. Number two, there's no night. There's no night. We could also say there's no darkness. There's no distance between God and man in the temple. There's no darkness. There's no night. God's presence in the city has implications for the city's lighting system. Verse 3, the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it because the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is The lamb, down to verse 25, in the daytime, because there's no night there, its gates will never be closed. Again, if you understand the Old Testament, you're going to see this, you're going to read this and say, yes, that's a fulfillment of exactly what God said. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 19, no longer will you have the sun for light by day nor the brightness of the moon to give you light by night because you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. The sun and the moon could add nothing to the radiance of God's glory in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. God is light, and there's no off switch or dimmer switch to his glory radiating in the new Jerusalem. Now, some people ask, and I ask this as well, does this mean that there literally is no sun and there literally is no moon, and does that then mean there's no sunsets? Because for me, a perfect day ends... Usually on the beach, with a little bit of warmth, I'm not too cold, and I see a sunset going down over the ocean with colors that no human could ever dream of. God alone could create those colors. Is there no more sunset? No more sun, no more moon? I, I, I think we have to say not necessarily, because even here, it says that the city has no need of the sun or the moon. It doesn't say it has no sun or moon, it just says it has no need. Maybe the sun and the moon are there. Maybe they're there. Maybe they, in comparison to the glory of God, are no longer needed for sure, but maybe they're still there. One of the things that I've realized as we've gone through these last few chapters of Revelation, we've been describing heaven. You've asked a number of really good questions about what heaven will be like. Many of those we don't know the full answer for. The Bible doesn't say too much about the specific details of heaven. What age will we be there? How will we know each other? Will we know each other? What will we know about heaven? There's a lot uh, about earth when we're in heaven. There's a lot of questions that I want to get to that aren't explicitly given to us in Revelation. And so I think before we end our study in Revelation, I think I want to spend a couple miscellaneous sermons just tackling some of those questions biblically but here's one of the questions. Will there be a beautiful sunset? Will there be uh, the idea of days? And if you drop down to verse, or chapter 22, we're going to see this, uh, Lord willing, next Lord's Day, uh, we are going to come into contact with this tree, this tree of life, and in verse 2, it bears 12 kinds of fruit, and it yields fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation. So there's still months in heaven. A lot of people ask the question, is there time in heaven? And they think of t- heaven as this timeless, ethereal place. It's not. It has time. It has to have time because we're singing in heaven. And singing, if you don't have a one, two, three, four, if you don't have a count for music, you have no music. So heaven's not going to be a place where we don't have time. It's going to be different than the time that we have here, yes, There's seasons. How do you have seasons without having the things that bring the seasons about, such as the sun, and are revolving around it? We don't know all the answers to these questions. But I want to submit to you, if you're asking the question based off of our text this morning, is it always going to be just this insanely bright place, and there's no sun, and there's no moon, and it's just always the same color all the time? I personally do not think that that's the case. Here's what I can say without a shadow of a doubt. God knows what you and I love. God knows what satisfies us. That's why he made the things that he made. That's why he made beautiful sunsets. He knows what satisfies us. Therefore, if heaven does not have sunsets the way that we think of them, I can promise you no one in heaven will be saying, this is a great place, but man, I really miss sunsets. No one in heaven is going to be doing that. And since we know that God knows what satisfies our hearts, he made it, he's a beautiful artist, then my guess is he will either give us what we know as a sunset here, or he's going to give us something greater. And I think that that's going to be an answer for a lot of our questions. What kind of food do we eat in heaven? If there's no death, how can we have chipotle? How can we eat meat if we can't kill the meat? And my answer to that is, I don't know. I know we're going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll talk about this in a future sermon. But I know that God knows what I love. And he's going to satisfy me with either that thing or something better. So we can talk about that more. But all that to say, when it says no night, I don't think that it's a reference specifically to there will never again be a sunset. There will never again be time. There will never again be sleeping and resting. I think we can enjoy rest. That's what Jesus even said, enter into the rest of your master. So when John writes that there is no more darkness, I think that it's, or no, no more night, I think it's the idea of never a place again of uh, moral impurity, moral darkness, or no need for physical light from the sun at all because of the glory of God permeating every single aspect of the new Jerusalem. We see this even in the New Testament. Light, the idea of physical light, takes on moral implications. Paul tells us to walk in the light, not in darkness. John chapter 1 verse 4 and 5, John writes, in Christ was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness." And the darkness did not comprehend it. So he's not talking about physical darkness. He's talking about moral darkness. John chapter 8 verse 12. Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So darkness can mean physical darkness, but it can also mean a moral spiritual darkness. And in heaven, there will be no moral spiritual darkness. Our life here literally revolves around the sun, S-U-N. And in heaven, our life will revolve around God's sun forever. There's no temple. There's no night. Number three, there's no division. There's no division. We have no distance between God and man. We have no darkness. We have no division. There's no division in heaven. This is verses 24 and 26. The nations will walk by its light And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Drop down to verse 26. They will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. What are these nations? Who are they? What are they doing? They're, in the commentaries that I read, in uh, my study this last week, I found 21 different views as to who these nations are. 21. So that just tells us right off the bat, we don't know. It's okay. Let me just give you two of them. I think, just in narrowing it down, I think that these are two really, really good options. Option number one, these nations refer to humans that survived through the Great Tribulation. So remember, if we go back to that seven-year period of Tribulation and Great Tribulation, if anyone survives physically through that, which the Bible says you can You will then enter physically, non glorified, you haven't died yet, you will enter physically into the uh, millennial kingdom and you'll reign with Christ for a thousand years. If, as some people say, you will not die, if you are a physical human being, non glorified saint, you will not die in the millennial kingdom, which is a possibility, and you make it all the way through the millennial kingdom as a physical human being, unglorified human being, then before the great white throne judgment ends and you enter into the new heavens, the new earth, you have to be transferred into a glorified human being. You have to be translated somehow from a physical, non-glorified human into a spiritual, glorified human being, uh, still truly human, but glorified, never able to die. So there is a view that says that that's what these people are. That's who these people are. They're walking from the nations after experiencing the millennial kingdom and enjoying the thousand year reign of Jesus on the earth, they're walking into the new Jerusalem and they're saying, here's the the glory that we have to offer you for who you are and for keeping us alive. Please translate us into glory so that we can enjoy heaven forever. Could be that. It also could just simply be non-Jews. It could simply be non-Jews. The word Ethne or ethnos just means the nations of the earth, people groups, all the people groups. So, one of just if we can pull back a little bit, Bible study 101, Bible interpretation 101. We always start with whatever is the simplest, most straightforward, easiest interpretation. And then we move to complexity. The Bible, the beautiful doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture, the Bible is knowable, it is clear. Uh, Psalm 19 tells us that the Bible, the Word of God, is, is not only comprehensible to a child, but it brings foolish people wisdom in such a way where uh, non-intellectual people can understand the Bible. So I don't think that you have to be some, uh, you know, earn a doctorate in theology to understand the Bible. Kids can understand the Bible. So we move from simple to complex. There are definitely complex issues for sure, but we start with simple. And then we also take all of those 21 views of what the nations can be. We take them all, we put them all together, and we see, is there a common thread running through them? Because if there's a common thread, then we can hang on to that as the application of what's happening. And the common thread through all of them, through all 21 views of who these nations are, is that they are diverse people groups of every tribe, tongue, nation, language, and people that are entering into this New Jerusalem, not losing their distinct people group uh, nature, their ethnic nature. And I think that that's biblical. We already saw that in Revelation chapter 7, that every uh, tribe, tongue, people, language, nation group, every single person, uh, people group is represented in heaven. We see it also in... The Old Testament, Psalm 66.4, all the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. Isaiah 66.23, it shall be from my new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath that all of mankind will come to bow down before me. So here's the beauty of what this means. When we get to heaven, there will be a distinction to who we are. We will not be this uh, homogenous mass of people. You're not going to be turned into an angel. That's a big misconception about what heaven is. You're not turned into an angel when you die. You are a saint here, and you are a saint there. You just receive a glorified body. But just like Jesus, when he died and rose from the dead, received a glorified body that could do some really cool things, like walking through walls and ascending into heaven, it could also do some very natural, normal things, like eating food. And the, the beauty of Jesus' glorified body is that it looked normal. He still looked Jewish. And so here, this section of Scripture is telling us that we will still retain our ethnic distinctions, but in a unified way. I love this. Everyone won't look the same. Everyone won't sound the same. Different languages will be being spoken, and we'll probably be able to learn them very quickly. It's going to be gloriously diverse, and they bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. I think that that is a reference to uh, these nations that are on the earth, these people groups that do specific things very, very well. There are people groups that have their culture and their context that do things well, whether it's artistically, creatively, technologically, they do things very well. And so they bring that to the new Jerusalem. We will be learning, discovering uh, technological advances in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. We will be discovering things together, learning from each other, but never in a jealous way of I want what you have, never in a warring or ununified way. If you go all the way back to what Jesus said in the parable of the talents, it's not a new concept, this idea of if you're faithful in the little Uh, here, God will give you faithful in the much. And if you're faithful in the little in the millennial kingdom, God will give you faithful in the much in the eternal state. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 11. Nations and languages were created by God at the Tower of Babel. And God did that specifically to keep evil in check. God, we see it even on display in, in our world right now. You have nations that are rising up to say, What's happening in Europe, what's happening with Russia, what's happening here is not right. And so there are countries, there are nations, there are people groups that will rise up to defend innocent people. So God allowed and created the diversity of nations and people groups to keep evil in check. But here in the New Jerusalem, we don't need to keep evil in check. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. No hostility towards each other. It's also a beautiful picture of redemption because the nations in the book of Revelation always referred to pagan, rebellious people who were trampling the holy city, becoming drunk with the wine of Babylon and the harlot of Babylon. And here these nations are redeemed. They're saved. No temple, no night, no division. Fourthly, no danger. No danger. There will never again be anything dangerous or terrifying. This is the middle of verse 25, in the daytime, for there will be no night there. It's gates will never be closed. Gates will never be closed. Always open. There's no threat outside of this city. Gates will never be closed. In my Bible, it, it just says that. It's gates will never be closed. But in the Greek, it's in this form called the future of emphatic negation. Meaning, literally it reads, it will in no way ever be shut. There's no possible chance that this could ever happen would-be exploiters of the open city will be non-existent. Obviously, walls and gates are used to keep the good people safe inside and keep the bad people out. Even here in our world today, you have a lock on your front door. The happiest place on earth has gates that are closed at night so that you can't go ride the Pirates of the Caribbean by yourself uh, in the middle of Disneyland at night. Again, Old Testament described this, prophesied this. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 11. Your gates will continually be open. They will never be closed, day or night. Again, day or night. This is in the eternal state, day or night. We do have a day and a night. So that men may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings leading in procession. Perfect safety, perfect security, perfect rest. You'll never again have anxiety. There's never a danger or a threat that you're worried about in heaven. I love this because... For me, I I leave the house and then immediately when I leave the house and I sit in my car, I always start thinking as I'm driving away, I didn't lock the door. I didn't turn the stove off. The lights are still on. I just instantly start thinking about all those things. Never again. If you leave the door open, no worries. If you leave the stove on, no problem. Never anxiety, never any anxiousness or worry. It's a place of perfect peace. No danger. Finally, number five, no defilement. No defilement, no transgression, nothing unclean allowed into this city. Even with wide open gates, there are certain things that will never be allowed access to this city. This is another, in verse 27, future of emphatic negation. It says, my Bible says, nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination. Literally in the text, it's nothing will in any way ever enter. Nothing will in any way ever enter. It's an impossibility. Nothing unclean, nothing that's blemished, the complete absence of anyone and anything sinful. In heaven, everything is fit for worship. That's why God doesn't need a temple because there's nothing fallen around him. Nothing's unclean. You can also see the word there in the text. My Bible says, no one who practices abomination. Practices, that's your life. You're devoted to these sins. This is active rebellion. Rebellion. This verse is intended as a warning to the reader that the only way to enter this city is by becoming a follower of the Lamb and having Him cleanse you. Well, what's missing here is sin. The question is, will you be missing here? Because you are a sinner. I am a sinner. So how can we enter a clean, pure city? The answer is God needs to change you. That's the only way. If you want eternal life, you must be clean. You must be cleansed. You must be purified by the work of another. You must be clothed in the righteousness of another. No amount of your efforts, no amount of your trying, no amount of your good works will ever make you perfect again. You and I have all experienced guilt and shame. We know that we are sinners. We know that we've offended a holy God. And no amount of us doing anything can blank out that record of wrongdoing. This is what Paul says in First Corinthians chapter six. Go go to 1 Corinthians chapter six. This is a familiar list to many of you, but it, it's appropriate here because you might read that list in Revelation and think, it describes me, we've all lied, we've all committed abominations. How can I ever make it to heaven? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's the same word, those who practice unrighteousness. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexual, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You look at that list and you might think, well, there's some of those things I've never done, there's some of those things I have done. Paul says, if you've done those things and if you make it a practice to do those things, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But here's the point of why Paul said that. Verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed... Notice, these are all passive. You were washed. You didn't wash yourself. You were sanctified. You didn't sanctify yourself. You were justified. You didn't justify yourself. Someone did the work for you. And who is that person? It's the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. All members of the Trinity represented there in your effectual salvation. If they are not doing the work to save you and to cleanse you and to sanctify you, to glorify you, you and I have zero hope of being saved. So we look at that list in 1 Corinthians 6. We look at the list in Revelation 21, and we realize that's all of us. Such were some of you. Have you been washed? Have you been cleansed? Have you been brought into a place where you know and you love that Jesus is your Lord? He is your master, and you worship him. Not perfectly, but your practice is one of fighting sin. Your practice is not one of enjoying and giving in to it. Where is your fight? One of the beautiful statements in Revelation 21 is that telling us what will not enter the city is equally revealing to what will enter the city. Since no transgression will enter the city, nothing unclean, then only purity exists there. Therefore, for you and for me, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you know that you're in the trenches of fighting a war against your sin, your flesh, the the devil. You are fighting that battle. But here... That battle is over. In glory, that battle that you and I have, not only to not commit sin, but also to not desire sin, and also to not be tempted by sin, all of that fight is gone. Because there's nothing that is defiling, there's no transgression, there's nothing unclean that can enter this city. If you want to enter this city, your name has to be written in the Lamb's Book of Life, the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, cry out to him, call upon his name, plead with him for salvation. Five beautiful items that will not be in heaven. No distance between God and man. There's never going to be darkness in a moral sense. No divisions between people groups. No racism, no fighting, no war, no conflict. There's never going to be any sense of danger or threats. There's never going to be any defilement. And so if this is true for then, and this is what exists in our eternal home, then I want to encourage you today to live as hard as you can in the here and now to bring these realities to bear in your own life. If this is true then, then let's work as much as we can to make these true possible now. Make them happen now. Let's look at what heaven is gloriously, beautifully known for and let's go backwards to see how can then we as the church get into our community, get into our world and have echoes of the beauty of the eternal heaven that we know we're going to live out in our own lives. Let's just work backwards through this list. If there is no defilement there then we must fight sin here. We must fight it. There's no more defilement. uh, the, The creation, Romans 8, groans for the redemption. The curse was given. God cursed the world. Have you ever stopped to think, Adam and Eve sinned, and God said, we'll curse the ground. Did the ground sin? No. Why did God curse the ground? Because of our sin. You look at the world today and you just see the curse and the effects of the curse in the ground creating this massive kaleidoscope of agony in our lives. Why did God allow that? Why did God do that? God cursed the earth, why? To show us how evil sin is. You can't see that. You cannot look at a sin and turn around and go, ooh, that's disgusting, you can't see sin. But you can see the effects. You can see the curse lived out in awful, devastating, tragic ways. Can I ask you a question? In your heart of hearts, which nauseates you more? Which offends you more? Sinning against God or seeing a natural disaster that tragically takes lives? Which makes you cry more? Which makes you weep more? Which makes you angrier I think we would tend to say, man, when we see on display tragic events, you know, the video of someone uh, dying, somebody going through some horrific accident, an earthquake or hurricane, we look at that and we say, oh my word, my heart just breaks for them. And then we just keep on sinning and keep on sinning and we don't feel the effects. That we're supposed to feel of how awful sin is. That's why God gave us the curse. It's a gracious gift to remind us this is what sin should feel like. You look at disability and it frustrates you. That's how frustrated you should be about your sin. That should be a prayer of our lives every day. Lord, help me to feel as frustrated with my sin as I feel with the, the disabilities I see around me. The tragic events in life that I see around me. The curse is at the physical level what sin is at the spiritual level. And it shows us how abominable it is to prefer anything over our maker. So if there's no transgression in heaven, let's work backwards and fight it here. Let's get angry about it here. Let's work together to kill our sin. There's no danger in heaven. There's no danger. Nothing that can steal your joy, or steal anything from you. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 20 and 21, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust does not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. So if there is no danger in heaven, then we should live for what lasts today. We should live knowing there's a place that we can pay it forward as it were to heaven, and we can store up treasures for ourselves there We should live a a life that's an open door of hospitality for others, knowing that, yes, we may get cheated here. Yes, we may have things stolen here. Yes, we may be hurt here or offended here, but there we will never be. So we can wear all of those difficulties now, knowing there nothing will ever wear out. That's why Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart is also. There's no division in heaven Beautifully diverse people groups enjoying their diversity. Let's live for that now. We live in a, in a country that is, uh, racism is one of the, the biggest issues on everyone's tongue today. It's on your mind. It's what you're thinking about. And most often it's thought about incorrectly and unbiblically. So how much more should we, who know the truth, who know there is coming a day when we will enjoy perfect diversity and unity in that diversity? We should enjoy that now. We should work to bring about unity and fight on an individual level, in our own lives, on a national level, as much as we're able to, on an ethnic level with each other. There's going to be no darkness in heaven. Therefore, we should walk in the light here We should work to expose the deeds that are done in the darkness and expose them to the light to enable people to see the glory of Christ. There's no temple in heaven. There's no distance between God and man in heaven. There's perfect pleasure and satisfaction and the presence of God. So love Jesus here because you know that there we will enjoy his presence fully. Jonathan Edwards says it this way, an existence of unending happiness that is incapable of exaggeration Is what awaits us in heaven. An existence of unending happiness that is incapable of exaggeration. Satan wants you to think heaven's gonna be boring. Satan wants you to think that it will be unappealing. It's just gonna be bright, and you're sitting on a cloud, and you're playing a harp, and it's this homogenous group of people, and we just sing all day. Satan wants you to think it's boring. But it won't be. And it won't be namely, specifically because of the presence of our God. But all the gifts that he has to give as the giver of the best gifts, we will enjoy him through those perfectly. If you've ever thought, I know, and I know you have, I know many of you have, because we talked about it. What would it have been like to be one of Jesus' disciples on earth, walking with him, talking with him? We need to rephrase that question. It's not, oh, what would that have been like? Brothers and sisters, that's where we're headed. Rephrase it. It's what will it be like. Yes, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they got to experience it 2,000 years ago with Jesus on earth. We get to experience it forever in heaven. Don't say, well, what would that have been like? Say, what will it be like? Because that's your future. That's my future. There's a sanctuary here in these verses for every heart of every weary pilgrim longing to be home. Heaven is a place where there's no longer... Not yet. Heaven is a place where there's only now. You have it now. May these verses awaken in us a longing to be home. May even what we see around the world create in us a greater depth of homesickness. Because we're going there. Not yet, but soon. Father, thank you so much for these verses that encourage our hearts God we long to be home oh, we long to be home even now as we sing of the glory of the new Jerusalem when on that day the great I am the most amazing most satisfying faithful and true Lamb of God will make all things new make all things new and redeem every single sin, redeem every single failure, redeem every single moment in our lives where we have chosen anything over you. May we sing now in response to these verses, knowing that day is coming. May we live in light of it, and may we work backwards to today to say how can we reverberate the promises of heaven around us now and plead with others to join in the glory that is yet to be revealed for all of us who are your sons and daughters. We pray it in your name, amen.